preaching this morning, um, and the service lasted four hours. And he said at the end, four people accepted Christ. So he was just on cloud nine seeing people connect with the Lord and um, have their lives changed very drastically in a moment. It's amazing what exposure to the presence of God does for all of us, right? So um, he's been able to see girls and the, the folks that they've helped to kind of prevent from trafficking. He saw hippos this morning. So he, he saw a mom and a baby kind of out in the dawn morning um, walking along. So really grateful that it wasn't too close because I've heard they're like the most dangerous animal to be around. So Lucy was dead set that that was his number one priority. So we were grateful that we have a video that we can see like these little gray blobs move across the screen. Um, but really excited. Come on the 29th, as Josh, Josh mentioned, this is going to be a chance for him to really showcase not only Joy International, but what he got to see in Uganda. Um, so thank you guys so much for being here. It's so fun to see so many faces. And um, I have the privilege of kickstarting a new sermon series for us called Lullaby. And um, the title may be a little bit deceiving because we're actually diving into like revelation and apocalyptic literature, which is a big word. For those of you don't, that don't know what that means, that means end times, the study of um, what's to come and the prophecies of what's yet to take place. So I get to dive into that. Isn't that going to be fun today? You guys ready? <laughs> um, before I begin, I want to um, just pull something to our attention. Have you guys ever been in a grocery store and sometimes you hear the music and sometimes you don't? Do you ever notice that? But there's everywhere we go, there's music. And there's a science behind that music, right? Some of it's fast. Some of it's slow. Some of it's a certain genre. Recently, I found myself in the grocery store being like, man, they have really honed in on the playlist at King Supers. Come to find out I'm just their target audience, right? So I'm the 40-year-old, I'm the 41-year-old 40 mom that's in there going, yeah, these are my 90s jams, right? There's a science there. Why we move through a store a certain way. I was reading about that when you want people to feel comfortable in a large crowd, Fast music helps them to compensate for the overstimulation of too many people around. Who knew? If you want people to pause and go slow, you slow down the music, and they linger. It's a fascinating, fascinating science. Um, but we're not here to talk necessarily about the science of music alone. We're here to talk about, really, truly, the undercurrents, this, the covert messages, cultural elements, that truly stand in opposition, stand in defiance to who Christ is, to who the kingdom of God is. We don't hear it oftentimes. We don't notice it. We're so, in a sense, acclimated, accustomed to it, that it's hard to delineate what's of this world and what isn't and what shouldn't be for those of us who might call ourselves Christ followers, right? So we're going to be going through this series called Lullaby, where we're paying attention to those things that are subtle, those things that are just in the background, pulling us, drawing us in subtle ways, in very covert, recoverable ways. Um, there's a, a famous book by C.S. Lewis. How many of you guys have ever read or heard of the book Screwtape Letters? Okay, maybe about half. Screwtape Letters is a fascinating read. If you ever want something very entertaining by C.S. Lewis versus very like, ugh, I have to read that sentence five times to know what you're trying to tell me. Um, it's a book that really is, is set under the premise of a master demon 
or Wormwood, mentoring an apprentice. And it's a coaching memoir, in a sense, or kind of made-up memoir, of what it would be for a demon to kind of describe how you make a human fumble, how you get them to trip up, how you get them to kind of stumble and ignore that calling, that subtle voice in your spirit, the call to something beyond lunch or the next thing or the next to-do, right? And one of my favorite lines in that book, or maybe not my favorite or maybe the most um, telling lines, is Wormwood says, I tell you, you don't need to get them, and this will give you a little bit of um, nod back to C.S. Lewis's time. You don't need to get them to play cards, and you don't need to get them to be caught up in the drink, and you don't need to get them doing all of these sins. All you need to do is get them slowly moving away, and that will lead them away from heaven and exactly where we want them to go to our master. And it's just the reminder that it's not about the big things in life, the things that we're so very aware to guard against, but it's the subtle things in life that we sometimes need to go, oh, maybe I need to pay attention. Maybe I need to look at this differently. So we're going to dive into, before this kind of series begins, we have to unpack a couple of different elements of apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature um, to really make sure we're understanding that. So there's two kind of common themes in apocalyptic literature. The first is called Babylon, and Babylon is contrasted with the kingdom of God. That's one kind of set of imagery. The second is you'll see a word like harlot or the adulterer or the prostitute, very visceral words contrasted with the bride of Christ, okay? So these are two kind of sets of imagery that we're going to unpack and walk through because this is going to set the foundation for this series over the next few weeks that we're going to dive into. Um, so first, we're going to talk through, through Babylon. And Babylon, there's been many, you know, you'll read the um, accounts, whether you look in Daniel or you look in Revelation, and all of our tendency is to be like, is that a current city now? Like, are we in the end times? Are we here? And Babylon is really not meant to point to a single moment in time, a single city, a single set of people or groups of people. It's meant to represent the cultural kind of um, elements of a culture that's set apart or set against God, set against the kingdom of God. So for those of you who may have different Bible backgrounds, you may recall the Tower of Babel, right? That's one of the first instances of where we see sort of Babylon come through. And Babel was where people tried to unify languages, to be like God, to promote themselves in a powerful way. That was the beginning of Babel or Babylon. Then Daniel talks about Babylon. And it's not pointing to Babylon then. Revelation talks about Babylon. It's not pointing to, you know, I've, I read this week, it was like, it's Iraq. It's Iran. It's all the, you know, there's all these people saying, it's this, it's this, let's find it. If you look at Babylon, um, I'm going to direct us actually to a um, a slide here. Go ahead and go there, Trevor. So this is a little bit wordy, but I want us to, to get what um, Dr. Johnson is saying. <laughs> Babylon cannot be confined to any one historical manifestation, past or future. Babylon has multiple equivalents. The details of John's description, so this is going to be in Revelation, do not neatly fit any past city, 
whether literal Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, Rome, or even Jerusalem. Babylon is found wherever there is satanic deception. Go to the next slide, Trevor. It is defined more by dominant idolatries than geographic or temporal boundaries. So that's a big statement. So for kids in the room, what that means, this is more defined by the culture, by an ideology, by a way of thinking, and a way of thinking that is against what God has, and it is about a specific geography or a specific moment in time, right? So the ancient Babylon is better understood here is kind of the archetypal head of all entrenched worldly resistance to God, another big sentence. But it's really the representation, the pinnacle, or the identity of what it means to be in resistance to God. Which, how many of you guys could say, I kind of know what that means to be in resistance to God. Have you ever had a moment in life? Okay, I want to see more hands than that, (laughs) y'all. There we go. Okay, you're awake. (laughs) Um... It truly is how, how we would define that, that culture or that view or that tendency that resists God. If we go to the next slide, another way to look at it is personified in a couple of different ways. Um, Babylon is looked at as audacious godlessness. And in the culture of Babylon, it is a culture of wealth. It is a culture of opportunity. People are getting rich. People have growth. They praise Babylon because of the security, the safety, the hope that is found there. But what happens is it's come, all of that wealth, all of that glory has come at the expense of economic oppression. This is what Revelation talks about. It comes at the expense of standing on someone else, right? It exudes self-glory. It's all about me and mine. It basks in the riches and luxury at the cost of others' misery, right? This This is what Babylon, in a sense, is dependent on. In order for that wealth to grow, someone has to be stepped on, put down, right? And we see that in our world. We know that economically as the... The wealthier get wealthier, what happens? The poor get poor, right? This is the culture of Babylon, the lean into the wealth. If you were to look at, and we can go to the next slide, if you were to look at um, what this looks personified, there's an interesting passage in Revelation 17 where Babylon is, is presented as a person, and this person is seductive, intoxicating, alluring, and yet at the same time, hideous. You ever have those moments where you look at someone and you're like, wow, on the outside, you're so put together. And then you get to know them and you're like, mm-mm, mm-mm. There's something there. That's Babylon, right? Babylon is that type of personification. There's beauty and hideousness all at the same time. Full of abominations, shame. That's full of shame, full of guilt, right? Murderous, intoxicated by harm to Christians. This is the culture and the viewpoint of kind of the godlessness or the world. If we go to the next slide, this would be, in a sense, the motto. This comes out of Isaiah, and it says, Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one, 
besides me. And now before we move on and say, all right, this is Babylon, and I'm over here. Isn't it interesting, the phrase, I am. I am. In a sense, it's a claim that I am enough. There's no one besides me. I'm, I'm good. We're all good. But before we dismiss and say, oh, that doesn't apply to me, I want to take us back, actually, to 2014. The reason why I want to take you back to 2014 2014 was a year that selfies were introduced. <laughs> 2014 was a year that the Google searches, people go, what is a selfie? We're trying to figure it out. But suddenly, who becomes the focus of all of our attention? Who captures it? Who else is around us in our selfie culture? And the things that we focus in on most? And before we say, ah, oh, yeah, all the ladies in the room, that was all the girls, go to the next slide. That had nothing to do with chromosomes. The most widely searched term in 2014 was boys' selfie tips. Fascinating, you guys. Fascinating. This is the culture of Babylon. I am. I am enough, or I'll at least pretend to be enough. I'm the center. I'm the focal. For those of us who might not be into social media, we don't find ourselves taking selfies all the time. Maybe that's not your world. When was the last time that we paid attention truly to our supply chain, to the choices where our ease of fast fashion, our ease of food access, our ease of you name it, that we paid attention to how it became so easy? Are we, in fact, a, a, um, one who is also participating, I can think of the word, in the standing on or the oppression of others in our attempt at vanity, in our attempt at I am the center, I am the most important. The way that I look, the way that I present myself, the way that I bring security and control into my world, is it about me? Is it about I am and what I create and what I stand on that brings that security or that hope? Another way to maybe ask the question or to ask, you know, how much is Babylon a part of my worldview? Who benefits? Who benefits the most from your prayers? From the things that you beseech God for, that you ask for? Who benefits the most from your time? What about your treasures? Your talents? Okay? This is, I promise we're not going to stay in the downer the whole time, but I want us to see it's important. Babylon isn't something out there. Babylon creeps in. It seeps in. It becomes a part of what we value and what we prioritize, contrasted with, and this is where apocalyptic literature contrasts the kingdom of God against Babylon. So if we go to the kingdom of God, this is the kingdom of God. Trevor, I am. For those of you who don't know that reference in the Bible, I am is the first time that God introduces himself to Moses as he is in the burning bush, and Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? I'm going to rescue. I'm going to 
pull them out of Egypt. And in a sense, that's another personification of Babylon, right? An oppressive culture, an undercurrent that has taken hold of the Israelites. Who will I say has sent me? And God simply says, I am. I am. I am enough. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the king of kings. And the phrase, if you've ever heard it from maybe Jewish friends or um, different um, religious literature, the phrase Yahweh is another um, representation. I am who I am is what Yahweh means. This is simply the opposite of Babylon. If you go to the next one, in the kingdom of God, this is where Jesus says in John, all of the different I am statements, where Jesus steps into, I am God. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd, the resurrection, and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. Jesus stands in opposition and says, I am. Not I am, as we would say. In the kingdom of God, it becomes others-focused. So if we move to the next slide, Trevor, it's about others first. It's about an ax, sharing possessions, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, the fruit of the spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what defines the kingdom of God, right? So if you compare these two, right, Babylon to kingdom of God, I think it's pretty clear It's all about, in a sense, where our attention is going. Where is the attention and our focus placed? The next thing that I want to look at um, is the adulterer, prostitute, the harlot. There's a number of words that are used to describe the kind of the opposition of the bride of Christ. Um, This is all imagery, you guys. So don't take this literally. (laughs) This isn't... um, Yeah, it's just simply meant to be imagery, to help us truly understand what it looks like when we stand, in a sense, in religious apostasy, when we're willing to stand in spiritual infidelity, when we're not loyal to our first love, which is Christ. So if we go to the next slide, um, actually the one after that, Trevor, Um, and really what this is this kind of symbolism is speaking to is that sexual immorality is used as symbolic terms for that religious apostasy, that pulling away, that distance in the relationship between us and Christ. So us as the bride of Christ with, with Christ. Um, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, if you were to kind of take the um, theme or thrust of this, rather than attention which would be Babylon and kingdom of God, the the harlot and uh, the bride of Christ really has to do with our affections. So if you you look at this verse out of 2 Corinthians, you'll see almost the echoes back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden and how this has become the Tower of Babel and Daniel and all the way through Revelation. It brings us back to that I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I find it really, really interesting that it says thoughts. In some translations, it'll say minds. It's not that you'll be led away in your actions, that you'll be led away in your words. 
When you go back to the science of music, music influences more of your mood than your cognition. Okay? In a sense, it kind of dulls your thinking and elevates your mood, boosts your dopamine, boosts your serotonin. The same thing happens, right? This, this term serpent is another, there's so much imagery in apocalyptic, so you guys bear with me, but serpent is really the personification of the devil, of evil, of Satan, that he came and deceived and that your thoughts. This is why the Bible talks about guard your heart. Guard, 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 because you know what's being influenced? Your mood, your thoughts. And suddenly, just like in screw tape letters, suddenly Wormwood's directions to his apprentice become true. It's just subtle. We're just moving away. We're just stepping slowly, slowly away. And this is the warning coming out of 2 Corinthians. If we contrast that now to the bride of Christ, Trevor, if you want to go to the next slide. The bride of Christ is where we have a pure and whole heart towards Jesus. No other hope. No other God or Savior. This is where we ask the question of ourselves, where do I find my security in life? Where do I find my control? Is it in how many dollars are in my account? Is it what my relationships look like? How many attaboys I got from my coach last week, from my teacher, from my boss, from my mom, my dad? Where is this placed? This is where this idea of the adulterer becomes so subtle. It's about our thinking. It's about where we suddenly go, oh, okay, I can manage through the unknown of life because at least I know that I have retirement planned for. You manage through the unknown of life because at least I know this is secure. And if that anchor, if that foundation is anything other than who Christ is and Christ alone, we're in apostasy. We're in infidelity to the bride of Christ, right? So we've all fallen short. The Bible talks about in Romans, we've all fallen short of God's glory, the bride of Christ is the call to God's glory. Do you guys have moments in your spiritual life where you look back and you can kind of hold on? Maybe there's this palpable sense, this real tangible sense or experience of who God is. Do you guys maybe ever had that in your spiritual walk? Moments where you go, man, there's no denying God is real. I don't fully understand. I don't fully get it, but God is so real. When you look at in, in the Bible moments where people bump into who Jesus is, Isaiah gives us a really clear picture. Isaiah has a vision of himself standing before the throne room of God. And what does he say in that first word out of his mouth? He says, woe is me. Our posture changes when we're suddenly met with the real, palpable, tangible presence of who God is. Things change when we see Jesus, things change in our perspective, in our assurance, in our hope when we see 
truly who God is and who are we who we are called to as the bride of Christ. It calls us in a sense to stand in awe. To stand in awe of who God is. So really at the heart of this, as we think through this sermon series, you guys, if you want to move to the next slide, Trevor, it's really about where is our focus? What is the focus of our attention? And where is the focus of our affection? We don't normally talk like this at CLC. If this is one of your first times here, if you only come occasionally, we're not ones to be like, man, we are diving into apocalyptic and we are talking through the hard things, but you know who does talk like this? The Bible. So there's moments at times where we have to not shy away from the things that as American Christians go, mm, I don't know if I want to touch that. That feels a little bristly. I like this whole grace. God is good. God is good all the time. Those are my words, right? The Bible's like, true. God is grace. God is good. But God is also righteous. Just like a strong marriage or a strong relationship or a strong friendship, when there's, a, when there's a desire to be pulled away, when your affections go somewhere else, what happens to that relationship? It falls apart. There's consequences. The same is true spiritually. So we're not, we shouldn't, in a sense, be surprised that the relationship dynamic changes. But the reason that we're talking about this is because if you go to the next slide, Trevor, our attentions and our affections have consequences. This isn't something that we go, that's kind of nice. I'm so glad we kind of talked about it today at CLC that now I understand apocalyptic literature better in the Bible. I understand where all of these themes are coming in the Bible. It's because these, these cultures, these decisions, these subtle steps come with consequences. And when you look at where does the culture of Babylon lead? If we go to the next slide, Trevor. Culture of Babylon, according to Revelation 18, leads to death. All of her wealth by land, by sea. It talks about the purple um, fabrics and dyes and all of the things that at that time was the cultural things that they relied on. We could say our 401ks, our homes, our real estate, our investments, our jobs, our careers, our multifaceted career path that hedges against, you know, headcounts and recessions and all sorts of things. Um, it talks about destruction, mourning. It also talks that Babylon receives, in a sense, her due reward. The way in which she has treated the poor and the oppressed becomes the way in which she is treated. And she is never, in a sense, it says never to be found again. There is, there is a destruction and desolation of Babylon. And it's contrasted in celebration of those who are the bride of Christ. So if we go to the next slide, Trevor, the bride of Christ is contrasted. This is coming out of Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Next slide. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha 
and the omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So when it comes to the consequences of Babylon, death, destruction, desolation, we read the opposite for those who are part of the bride of Christ. We see no more pain. No more mourning, no more death, life eternal. When you look at Revelation 2 and 3, the reward for those who repent and overcome, repent and overcome, repent and overcome, the reward for that is your name will be written in the book of life. Your name is written on a stone. You are given a new name. You're able to eat from the tree of life, that we forever stand in the presence of who God is. This is the difference between the two. Um, so just like the music in a store, guys, whether we hear it or not, whether we notice it or not, this culture, the pull, the allure, right? Babylon, there's, there's no mistake that the words being used are seductive, alluring, The road feels easier. There's less resistance. It feels smoother. But it's not the road we want to be on. Um, The harlot has a call that is both ruthless, beautiful, and hideous. Her traps are subtle, slow, and in many times, logical. But did you catch, um, once again, I'm going to take you back to that 2 Corinthians. It has to do with her, about guarding your thoughts, guarding your minds. If we go to the next slide, one of the things that I found most fascinating is I studied the science of music. The American Psychological Association pulled out something very important. That music only motivates an impulse buyer. It does not motivate the thoughtful shopper. Okay? Those who come with a list, those who come with a plan, those who don't go, oh, that's interesting. I don't know what that could do. La, la, la. How many times can we go, ooh, Amazon? Amazon is a bit like going to like a casino nowadays, right? Like there's, there's no concept that that's real money. That it's, not, it's like so far beyond a credit card. It's like, oh, I just have to swipe. Now they at least make you swipe versus just tap to make sure that you really want it. But it's unbelievable, right? Music motivates only the impulse buyer, not the thoughtful shopper. The same is true when we think of the lullabies of Babylon, the things that are in the background, the things that are subtle that we might not even hear, we might not even notice. They don't work for those of us who are thoughtful shoppers, for those of us who have learned, in a sense, to know the traps, and to guard our hearts, and to prepare ourselves in such a way that we aren't drawn to those things, that we aren't carried away by those things. If you go to 1 Peter 1.13, 1 Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all that you do. Right? The call is to be on your guard. So this series, you guys, that we get to jump into over the next few weeks is really about uncovering what the Bible warns us about the traps that have been set for us. Satan's not that creative, right? Babylon isn't that mysterious. The adulterer hasn't changed for millennia. It just shows up differently in the ways in which our culture today draws us and appeals us to things around selfies, where we find our security, where we find our stability, where we place our hope. One of the things that we'll be doing as a regular practice through this series is every time the Bible uses imagery between Babylon and the kingdom of God or the harlot and the bride of Christ, is that there's a call each time, whether to individuals or to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there is a call to humble yourself first, to repent we don't use that word often, especially at CLC, and, and honestly, in, in, the, in the American church typically, we don't use a lot of words around repentance. We don't like sitting in our guilt. None of us do. We don't like sitting in the ways in which we've fallen short, in our shame. Um, in that humility, the next step is confession repentance, 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 repentance. It's all over Revelation. All over Revelation. That our posture, our perspective, if the road to hell is led with good intentions, the road to heaven is led with the blood of Christ. It's not about what we do. It's about who we rely on. And in, in the next few moments, and we'll be kind of building this practice over this series, as we're going to be spending some time in humility, recognizing privately in prayer where we've fallen short, where we need to repent, where our heart needs to be different than it was yesterday. But in the end of that, the Bible says we don't have to live in guilt, in shame. Instead, we rise in grace. So we'll end in a chance of, of praise of peace and the grace of who God is. Because we have all fallen short. All of our affections, all of our attentions have been pulled away. And my guess is, even this morning, our affections and attentions have been pulled away. We've been seduced by her glory, by her security, by the attaboys, by the status, by the fame in our own way, right? We've fallen prey to the allure that is appealing, that is easy. Um, so we're going to just spend some time. Chris is going to just play in the background. I'd like us to just spend time whether you want to bow your head, you want to just simply keep your eyes open and look around, or if you want to simply change your posture, the Bible talks a lot about the power of our posture. If you want to kneel, if you want to cover your head in prayer, whatever it is, the audience in this room today isn't us. The audience in this room is Christ. 
And as we stand or sit in humility, we're going to take a few moments and just sit there in humility. Then we'll go through confession and then we'll stand in grace. So with that, I'm just going to pause and take a few moments with you and Jesus. Take a few more moments. Pay attention to where your heart resists. Where it feels maybe uncertain to lean in, to trust. Maybe where you feel distracted. Notice that and bring yourself back. <laughs> 